0: Not proud that that was me And when I face it Take back a little dignity Not looking for excuses I just want to be free from power
1: Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm your host, Jean McCarthy. I write the blog Unpickled. You'll find it at unpickledblog.com. I tell my story there, and I invite you to share your stories here. Now, many of us have found ourselves trapped in the cycle of alcohol addiction. Our worlds get smaller and smaller as our obsession with our maladaptive coping skills grow. Our life sometimes gets thrown out of proportion, and we forget all about the many other good pleasures that fill the world. We can lose interest in the world around us and focus narrowly on the one thing that we think is getting us through. So it stands to reason, then, that recovery can be a time of reawakening, a rediscovery of the things we used to enjoy, and finding other new ways to enjoy ourselves. Without the shackles of addiction dragging us down, we can be pleasantly surprised by the things we're capable, not only of doing, but of enjoying. So my guest today is Marie G, who recently celebrated a year of sobriety. She's found her passion in cycling. And Marie joins me today from her home to tell her story here on the Bubble Hour. Hi, Marie. Hi, Jean. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for being here. And I know the story you're about to share with us. Um, you asked me to make sure that I offer to our listeners a trigger warning, and I'm, I'm glad you suggested that, because I know your story um, involves rape, and that it is a very difficult story for people to hear, depending on their own situation and um, things that they've been through, too. And so you very kindly asked me to make sure our listeners take the time to ground themselves and take care of themselves and know that if they need to take a break or skip ahead, that that's Totally uh, important thing to do, as they listen to you share something that can be quite painful. Yeah, and I appreciate you doing that. I, uh,
2: you know, it's. I was I was thinking about all the things that I would say, you know, during this interview, and I can't talk about alcohol, my alcohol use and recovery, without talking about being a survivor of rape. Um, just because it has become such a part of my identity um, for one, like being a rape survivor, but also being someone in recovery that, you know, and and a lot of people might disagree, right? Like we all are like, well, you know, we don't like labels or, you know, don't, don't, you know, kind of put me in that category. But I think for me, and even a year ago, I, I wouldn't, it was hard for me to, um, you know, kind of identify with that label of, you know, I, you know, even now, like not saying necessarily alcoholic, but just like that I have a substance use disorder or, you know, that, um, you know, I drink too much, like whatever label people want to use, um, I think it's fine with them. So, yes, I, I'm i happy that you are doing that trigger warning, um, you know, because we know that for survivors of rape, particularly at the age that I was and younger, um it can, it, it does severely impact and literally changes the entire trajectory of your life, especially when you don't have somebody step in and help you.
0: Mm-hmm. So I guess
2: that's where my story starts. I don't know if you just want me to start out with when I was fourteen. Yeah, cause that's really that. kind of when this all started. Um, so really, there wasn't any. So my um, my drinking spans 20 years exactly. And so from the time I was 14 until exactly a year ago, when I was 34, uh, I drank. I drank to numb out. I drank to forget the pain. Um, it became such a, um, a way to, and I, I can't describe it other than numb, um, to forget about the pain, to not look at it, even if something came up to where I was like, well, that seems strained," or something, you know, something doesn't feel right here. It was like, oh, well you know, it it got, you got, it got to be such a habit of, oh, I'll just have, you know, wine or beer, um, you know, to, to calm out the day, like, particularly when I got into my 20s and 30s. But when I was 14, um, I was raped. And it was by a man who was 10 years older than me. And so I, not to say that that makes it any worse. um, But I think that Probably set me on this trajectory of, um, you know, feeling like there's no one to trust in the world and um, kind of this like idea that, oh, there's older men that pay attention to me. And so it became this like awful almost like I was sexualized from a really young age um, and then was raped. And then the next year I was almost raped by a teacher. So I was in ninth grade at the time when I was raped. And then a year later in 10th grade, um, a teacher almost raped me. And the reason why I'm, I'm sharing this is because I'm also a massive advocate now for, um, you know, raising awareness about educator sexual misconduct.
0: Mm-hmm. And
2: um, so that happened. And so that really just kind of set me on this other trajectory of, You can't trust anyone, even someone who is supposed to protect you, who's in place of being a parent, um, who is supposed to teach you and, you know, guide you, who's in a position of power is the one that's now harming you. And so really those two experiences shaped my high school years and you know, I, I think I started drinking soon after I was raped, um, you know, just at like parties and, and, you know, what our little high school did, you know, like we went out every weekend or there was some party in someone's backyard or out in the cornfields. Um, I grew up in upstate New York and, um, it was just the norm. And so I quickly learned that, you know, oh,
1: I have you back, Marie. We dropped your call for a quick second there. So we left you in a cornfield in upstate New York uh, as a as a teenager. I'm sorry we abandoned you there, but we have you back
2: now. <laughs> That's okay. Glad I got out of the cornfield. <laughs> so um, what I was saying was is that, you know, we I realized that, um, you know, just going to parties and drinking and, you know, underage drinking was just very common and normalized where I grew up, um, particularly in my school. And so I learned very quickly that I could numb out and just have fun and forget about what happened to me. But even like consciously, I wasn't even aware of what happened to me. So I would be someone who, and there's actually many, many people who are rape survivors, and they didn't actually call it rape. There's even a book. It's called, I, you know, I Didn't Call It Rape. I didn't know it was rape. Where um, rape survivors don't know, they, they this this concept that we have about rape in society is, you know, that some you know somebody jumps out of the of bushes or an alley and pulls you away and rapes you, and then like you're crying and screaming and all of this, and that's, that that's not accurate for a lot of people, um, and that a large percentage of people kn- knew the person that raped them; they were an acquaintance. And that was actually the case for me, is that I knew the, the man who raped me. Um, so it, it, I wasn't even aware that I was doing this. It was very, like, underneath this deep surface that I'd created, like, so far back and buried um, that I didn't even consider it as anything but, oh, like, this just must be how people are. Because I was fourteen, and so I had no concept of boundaries, I had no concept of what a healthy relationship is and what healthy sex was. um and so, in that specific moment in time when I was fourteen it it almost kind of was like, "Oh, like th- this is how just things are," and it be and it normalized it very quickly and um so. I think I'd mentioned, so I was almost raped by the teacher when I was 15, and then at 18 I was raped again by someone else, um, another male who was much older. And so I'm almost positive there were other times that I've been raped, but things are so blurry I can't quite remember, and I'm like, it sounds awful. It really does, and I think when I, (laughs) I can't believe I'm laughing. It's kind of like you get to the point. I I don't know, maybe in recovery or, you know, recovery from all kinds of things that you're like, what the heck, you know, like, I can't believe that happened to me that, um, then I'm just like, well, you know, like there's not much I can do about it at this point. Um, so I came to the realization last summer, actually, that I had been raped again when I was 18 by this particular person. And I was at a beach, um, you know, with, with my daughter in upstate New York and, there was a, um, it was like a speedboat that kind of went past us, and it was a trigger because I'd been raped on a speedboat, and I didn't know that that was a trigger, and so the speedboat goes past us, and everyone's like, oh, that's me, and here I am, like, being like, oh, my God, like, why am I feeling this way? Why am I sobbing? What's going on? I'm at the beach. Like, what, how is this happening? And I realized, oh, my gosh, what happened to me was rape, and... <laughs> I I thought um, I was, and then we were staying with my sister who lives in Ithaca. And I was like, oh, well, why don't I just let the rape, like, wash down the gorges? You know, like, it's okay. I had already processed out the one rape. This this is just the same thing. We'll just let it wash down the gorge. (laughs) And um, I'm laughing because I I truly thought I could, like, wash the trauma down the gorge. So I'm like, "I I can't process out another rape. Like, this is just exhausting for me. Um, And I ended up coming back to my home and, um, like, processing it out. But it wasn't as in-depth and intense as the first one just because I think the one at 14, like I said, like, it stops you. Like, it it stops growth. It stops social growth, emotional growth. And for me, I don't really – I'm stunned kind of how I got to where I am right now, being in the position that I am in my career that – I did so well as in like, I had some struggles. Um, and I, you know, I it probably take me a little bit to figure out like, how did I, I think it was my family and I've always had a loving supportive family and I consider myself very lucky that, you know, I, I turned out okay. You know, granted there were, there was 20 years of heavy drinking. So for about, you know, there was the rape at 18 and then I just, you know, I drank, Um, you know, into college, not necessarily a lot, but it was kind of once I hit like late twenties, even into early thirties that like the drinking really kind of ramped up for me. And, um, it wasn't until about 2015 when I started questioning my drinking and I would start like looking online and, you know, because like I got sick of waking up like drunk and 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 shaking and blacking out and, um, you know, feeling just really sick and off. And I'm like, "I, I, you know, maybe I do have a problem, you know, because like my grandpa was an alcoholic and I'm like, well, you know, maybe. And so I would like take the quizzes. Like we know that so many people do. And like, I mean, I scored a pretty high on them, but Of course, just like many of your, you know, the people that you've interviewed and some of the stories that we hear is that like, well, I wasn't drinking in the morning and you know, I'm, I'm not drinking and driving, which I I was, so I don't even know why I just said that (laughs) I was, um, you know, so, but we tried to like justify our drinking and I tried to do that, um, and so that was in 2015, and I actually joined Women for Sobriety, which is a, a lovely, wonderful or um, you know, group committed to helping women be sober and be in recovery. Um, and so I joined them, and, you know, they have these, these online forums. And so I went on there, and, you know, I thought to myself, okay, well, maybe I can try it, you know, like I'm going to try it. And so I got to about 60 days. So my, for my first attempt. And then I drank for another year or so. I went back to drinking because I was like, Oh, it, it's, you know, Hey, I got to 60 days. See, I don't have a problem. This is fine. And I drank for another year or so. And then I tried it again and I got to 88 days. Um, and then I took another break from being sober and I drank for about six more months. And like, and during those kind of like drinking, particularly the last six months that I drank, it was like I knew in the back of my head that I know I need to stop, and and I knew I knew all of the research. I I you know I'd studied it. I'd read so many blogs and read art, you know, um, watched videos and read some books, and that like it will get progressively worse. And I knew this. It was all like very um, like I had an intellectual understanding of like alcohol abuse. But I couldn't, like, get over that hump. And so I think for me, I had to work through as much of the trauma as possible, and that's why I say that my trauma and the alcohol use is so inextricably linked. Like, I couldn't possibly pull them apart, Um, meaning I had to work through the trauma and all the crap to be able to be in a place where I could actually stop drinking. Because, you know, even now, you know, there's like, I, I think it was about, I should probably know this, but maybe like a year and a half ago is when I actually, um, you know, filed a police report for the rape that happened when I was, when I was 14. And, you know, so, and this is not uncommon, right? We're seeing, you know, with the whole Me Too movement um, and, you know, the times up that there are people who are saying, oh God, you know, I, I was raped. 15, 20, 30 years ago, you know, is it past the statute of limitations to, you know, to, to file a police report. And um, so, you know, last year I filed the police report and there was an invest, there was, they tried to start an investigation, but then they realized that there's no evidence. Like my rapist was that good um, Mm. that there was no, I mean, and plus it was what, 98. And so there was no cell phones. There was no um, you know, hardly like no debit cards. I mean, I'm sure there was debit cards, but he was probably so clever that, you know, he probably used cash and he took me out of, into a, into a city that I didn't know. He took me out of the town that I knew. Um, so he was like a master child predator. Um, and so there was no, there was no proof. And so poor New York state is like, we, we can't, there's not much we can do without proof. I mean, they're saying we it's not that we don't believe you. And so, and then I also filed uh, a report with the New York State Department of Ed against the teacher who almost raped me. And that was actually a nine-month investigation. I think it was like three or four months. And then they, it took them forever to go, you know, get back to me. And that was kind of a nightmare. But that that was open for nine months until they said, well, we don't have a proof. And of course he said, no, he, he doesn't recall that. And his brother doesn't recall it. And so there's not much we can do. Okay. So I still actually have some issues with New York state department of ed because they didn't handle the, my case properly. And, and they, they don't, people don't know how to handle cases of sexual harassment and sexual assault and particularly with teachers where teachers are the perpetrators, there aren't there there aren't strong laws, and there you know we still have you know there's 4.5 million students who are victims of educator sexual misconduct, um wow. and so 10% of K through 12 students are victims of educator sexual misconduct. So this is something that we're not even talking about, um, let alone there's no policy behind it, um and so that even is kind of normalized, um, you know, that like, Oh, hot teacher. And you know, that like, Oh, you have the attention of a teacher and the way that we treat male and female victims of, of educator sexual misconduct is very different. And so, um, so what I'm trying to say is I opened up that investigation and right, I I ha I filed that report and they opened an investigation. So I couldn't, I felt like all these things were still jamming me up and ma- and and contributing to me still drinking because I couldn't get closure on any of them. So it wasn't until I could like start to get closure and work through that trauma that I didn't feel this like need to get drunk and numb out. And so, you know, for for some of it like there is no closure right? Like the teacher's still teaching in the school 20 years later, you know, one of my rapists is, you know, both of them are, you know, living, you know, these quote unquote, like, you know, great lives and they have kids and it's like, um, you know, there's really not closure, but it's like, I have to get that closure with myself and move myself forward. Like It it doesn't matter anymore. Kind of. So there might not, they're not going to go to jail. And
1: in, pre- so in many sure cases, did how did you find that that closure and and be able to do, get what you needed to do to to get your sobriety really to 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 stick when you were faced with that feeling of frustration and powerlessness in trying yeah. to pursue those?
2: Well, I mean, I had a really good therapist who's an expert in sexual assault and domestic violence and addiction. <laughs> Um, she's perfect. And so she helped me to understand that the goal, because I, I wasn't getting like, getting over the rate, like I'd process it all out and I'm like, what the heck, Like why don't I feel better? And I'm like, I think it's because there wasn't any legal, like there wasn't any legal ramifications there. There's no, I couldn't do anything. And she's like, well then here's an option. Like, why don't you, you know, file a police report, even though it's 20 years later, that might just help you. So it's like, even though we really knew that that might not do anything because it was past the statute of limitations or it was kind of past it, it's kind of, it's hard to explain, but um, she thought maybe that would give you closure. Like maybe if you come out and and you, and you file a police report, or if you write a letter to the department of education about your experience. And so I did that. And, you know, so like that type of, that type of closure. And I'm, I'm glad I could have it. It wasn't a perfect closure though. So I think I'm still working on it's okay. Like maybe I don't get full closure on those, but now maybe I can start advocating or Mm. speak out or join an organization or, you know, kind of join this movement that we see, um, you know, about the time's up. Um, so I think, because I couldn't, you know, necessarily have full, quote-unquote, like, legal closure, I feel like I got closure, um, like, as much as I possibly could. And, that, and that's okay. Like, that has to be okay with me.
1: So tell me where the cycling came in. I know that cycling was
2: a big <laughs> Yay, game changer cycling.
1: for you. Yes, it was. <laughs> tell me about that. So um,
2: probably about two weeks into being sober... Um so first time, obviously, no, time? no, just a year ago,
0: okay, yeah, so it so
2: was th- probably yeah, it was early July um okay. of last year, and I'd wanted to um get into mountain biking for about a year. I just drinking got in the way,
0: mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, right, and so
2: like I just you know didn't do anything active, I just sat around and drank and hung out at the pool, and I just for whatever reason, and we have a lot of mountains where I live, and so Um, I, I'd always thought like, how cool is mountain biking? Does not that sound neat and gritty and dirty? And I like to be outside. And so, um, I had the, the, the intention to, and so, um, I got a mountain bike and it literally changed my life. And I, I tell people sometimes that, and then I got a road bike, um, that my mountain bike literally changed. It saved my life. I don't think I would be where I am. I don't even know where I would be. I think I would be a mess. I think I would be in a deep, deep depression and drinking heavily if I hadn't have gotten my mountain bike. And so I started um, just getting out on the mountain and I was slow as heck and just I would put in my headphones and just try and pedal just just, just a little bit. It wasn't, it wasn't anything crazy, you know, like you see on, you know, like mountain bike extreme videos. It was just enjoying being outside. And there are still mornings, but not so much. But when I first started and I had, and I'm, Even though I'm small, so I'm 5'2 and I'm about 110 pounds, like, I got a mountain bike that was supposed to be an extra small, but, like, it's a small and it's a men's bike. And so it looks huge, and it really, it is for me. (laughs) And I have these massive 3.0 tires on it, which is, like, a really big tire. And so I thought, (laughs) and it's black. uh, The whole thing is black. And I thought to myself, well, I can just run over anything with this bike. Like, if anyone comes in my way, I'm just, I'm just gonna run them over. <laughs>
0: um, and
2: I had this sense of like, like freedom and safety on my bike um, that I'd never felt before. It was almost like my mountain bike, like enveloped me with its arms. I know, it, I, know I get like, bikes don't have arms, but <laughs> it, it was, it was very strange. It was like. If, if a bike did have arms, that was the feeling. Like, it literally kept me up. There were, there were mornings in the last year where I would just start sobbing on my bike because I was still, like, in the process of, like, recovering from trauma and just, I've always said, with sobriety comes clarity. And so when you remove the alcohol, all of, like, the emotions that you were supposed to be feeling for the last 20 years, I finally was feeling. Like grief and sadness and joy and love and like deep, deep, like being grateful and um, like all of these things were coming up, like just a range of emotions from like really awful emotions to really positive emotions. And so literally just sobbing on my bike, but holding on to the handlebars and just being like, my bike is holding me up. And it was almost like my bike was just like talking to me like, it's okay, we got you. You know, like you're going to be just fine. Just keep pedaling. And, you know, like I just would keep going and sob and, and then I would stop. You know, i stop sobbing and then just keep pedaling. And it's those mornings that I think have changed my life where I was able to, like, grieve and be sad or be so happy. I mean, like the level of happiness that I felt in the last year, I've never felt that in my entire life of just, like, sobbing at, like, the sight of a, a sunrise or that, you know, I biked, you know, 50 miles and just, you know, being so incredibly happy that, like, oh, my God, like, I, I'm so grateful I can actually enjoy this instead mm-hmm. of being, you know, hung over in a bed and and, you know, just feeling awful and depressed and angry at myself. It was just these constant feelings of, you know, just joy and joy. Like I have never felt in my entire life. And I started telling people like, and feeling like this is the happiest I've ever been in my entire life. And wow. I said that numerous times over the last year and don't get me wrong. Like it was really difficult in the beginning. And I think, you know, like I still struggle, you know, like there's still crappy days. Or there's still days where I'm like, gosh, you know, I, I wish I could have a beer right now, but then I think, and I, then I have to think to myself, like, that doesn't, we, I know that that's not going to work. That's just, you know, that's just alcohol talking and trying to suck me back into it's like web. Um, And, and that I have to continue to keep thinking about how good I feel. And so the mountain bike um, had so much to do with that. I can't, I can't say enough about even just if people get out and do something. I would probably think like physical activity has a lot to do with it. And I don't know for whatever reason, mountain biking and now road biking. So I got a road bike. It's just this cutest little thing. It's white and blue. And um, and that was maybe like two or three months ago. And that was kind of another game changer. I was like, oh. I don't necessarily have to go out to the mountains. I can just ride out my, you know, front door and just ride, like ride on the roads and push myself. And so this, I the idea of aiming for the last year of instead of thinking about, oh, woe is me, I can't drink anymore, I, I kind of created this life of, okay, well, this week I want to ride this many miles or, like, I, you know, have a heart rate monitor and so now I focus on like my heart rate and how many miles I did and how my legs feel or and so the time that I spent thinking about alcohol you know or or, you know even trauma it's shifted to being healthy and like getting on my bike and and if I don't get on my bikes now it's you know I, I don't I don't feel right like it's actually a way that I process out things so explain the I...
1: difference between a mountain bike and a road bike and oh. what what the difference – I know the difference because I have a son that, that does them, but I know that there's quite a difference, like, in the experience you have on one versus the other because of the terrain you can access. So just talk a little bit about that.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, so mostly it's about the terrain. Like a mountain bike, you can, you can obviously be on mountains and be off-road. <clears throat> I had much bigger tires Um, so it was easier to kind of, um, like maneuver and, and, you know, things like that and technical stuff. And then I couldn't, I, I could also ride my mountain bike on the road, but I, it was slow as molasses because it's so big and so like such big tires. And so I, I knew I wanted to get a road bike and my partner, he actually, um, um, is a cyclist. And so he was more of the like catalyst for getting a road bike because I knew like, gosh, I want to get a little bit faster and I just have this mountain bike. And so, you know, we got a road, myself a road bike and that has the smaller tires, smaller frame. Like it's just, it's a much lighter bike. Um, You can go faster and you're only on roads, like literally, you know, like paved roads um, on, on my road bike. And so I do that now, like, not 90% of the time, which is really interesting to me that I kind of switch now to a road bike. I'm not really sure why yet, probably because it's faster. And I, you know, you can just go right out your door.
1: Do you get a bit of an adrenaline rush from either of them? Because I have to tell you that I see people, we have a cabin in the mountains, and I see people mountain biking out there. And I think, well, going up looks hard and coming down looks scary so I'm not sure which of those like where's the fun in either of those things do you like both of that is there like an adrenaline component to it or an achievement what Uh, what happens to you when you do that well I
2: think when I first started with the mountain bike that was more of just I want to get out and experience nature and I want to learn something new and be out by myself like way out in the mountains where And this is something really interesting, like where nobody can bother me and no one can touch me and and I can see for miles and I know exactly what's around me. And the only thing I have to be worried about is like, you know, a a jackrabbit or a scorpion or something. And so um, for me, there's not, that's really a question. There's not necessarily an adrenaline rush. It was more of when I first started, I knew that that could help me stay sober And so I just enjoyed it as like a physical activity and a way to process out trauma. And then on my road bike, I, you know, I, I feel like it's more of pushing my body and like feeling alive. Um, So I guess, yeah, maybe I, I def, I might have get adrenaline rushes. I've considered being in like maybe thinking about being in races and I would assume there's going to be like adrenaline rushes there. But I think for me, I've used it more as, like, a recovery
1: tool than anything
2: in, like, the whole okay. toolbox that I have.
1: So tell me what else is in your toolbox and how it all works together.
2: So um, aside from my bikes, there's Women for Sobriety. And so I use, you know, I use that group and their statements, um, and, you know, kind of their online forum is just to kind of stay connected to, to women who understand and who get it and in a very safe and, um, you know, loving, supportive space. And then I also follow Belle Robertson. You're probably familiar with her. Um, you know, she has her whole thing, Tired of Thinking About Drinking.
1: Right. And, and so I've for read... listeners who aren't familiar, if you'll find her at TiredOfThinkingAboutDrinking.com. And Women for Sobriety is is womenforsobriety.org. Sorry, go ahead. I just wanted to make sure. No, that's fine.
2: So um, I did a lot of reading, um, lots of, you know, reading blog posts and, um, you know, medical articles and books. And then, um, you know, I think therapy has had a lot to do with it. Um, like I said, I have an incredible therapist and I consider myself very privileged in, in recovery. Like I've had, um, you know, the best therapist, I have the best health insurance, I have the best supportive family, you know, like I haven't talked much about my family or, you know, my family of origin that, but you know, my parents being so incredibly supportive and, you know, I didn't gr- grow up around people who drank. And so I, I'm so grateful that that wasn't around me, you know, growing up. And I have, you know, my inner circle of friends who, um, you know, so I, I didn't lose a lot of friends like some people have or like drinking buddies. I'm so grateful that my best friend, we've been friends for 20 years. And even though we drank um, together when I, she was grateful <laughs> like, I think she was happy that I, and actually I don't think I know this, but she was happy that I stopped drinking because she didn't like seeing me like that. I and mean, you know, we would get in fights and I, I was not a nice person a lot of times when I was drinking. And so I consider myself even a, you know, a better friend now, I'm able to be present. And um, so I'm really thankful that I was able to continue that friendship with her and that 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 our friendship, you know, um, like superseded alcohol, you know, that, um, that I think that that's, that has definitely been a big thing. And, you know, having a a quiet space, um, last year, I, (laughs) I termed the year of extreme Mm self-care. And so I am so, um, diligent about, Making time for myself, um, making like this like safe cocoon of a house, and particularly my bedroom, I call it the sanctuary. I love and it's just it. quiet and calm, and like you know, a plant and like some you know like essential oils, and just like everything's quiet and white and calm. And I have like little quotes up, and it's not cluttered, and it's very like the the bed is really comfortable, and I just I spent so much time in it. Over the, the last year of recovery, like crying and sleeping and loving myself mm. and reading that that's like my like it's such a sanctuary to me that if I didn't have that, I think it would have been very hard to to be sober the last year and so I, I do I consider myself incredibly privileged that I've had all these resources um you know, um, to be able to be where I am at, at a year, like there's no doubt, like all these things that contributed to it and particularly the bikes and being around people who are sober. It was like these and, sober people started popping up in my life.
1: Okay. Tell me about that. Cause that's amazing. So yeah. Tell me how that happened.
2: Um, well, so four days after I stopped drinking, I asked out, Um, somebody that I worked with (laughs) and he ended up that he didn't drink either. And he hadn't had anything to drink since he was like, I think he was like 16 or 17. And so I'm like, Oh my gosh, you know, like just the irony that you find someone four days after I, you know, I'm like, I'm done, you know, I'm not drinking again. Um, that is also, that also doesn't drink and has a very healthy lifestyle. And then, um, I don't know, like just people who, um, who like I would meet or were like, I would consider like friends. It was like, they like started coming out of the woodwork. Like I just met someone at work, um, last week and she came out as, you know, that she's an AA and, um, I, I just was like, wow, you know, like and I asked her, like, why? Why did you out yourself to me? And she's like, "Well, I just I felt safe with you." And I, I mean, we've known each other for like maybe a few weeks. Wow. And it's like, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe like we just find each other, or um, did she know that you no. were sober too? Or she or did, did she not. <laughs> no, she just randomly said it, and I was like, "Oh, well, you know, I'm I'm almost at a year." And then the next day, she brought me um, a CD and a book.
1: And with a little card, you know, that said, like, great, good for you, and, you know. there. and I, I love how life delivers that to us. You know, I kind of feel maybe it's got something to do with, you know, they say when you're pregnant, you notice other pregnant women, and when you get a puppy, you notice how many puppies there are in the world. And, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe those same opportunities would have been there when we were drinking, but we just didn't. We weren't interested in them, so we weren't grabbing those opportunities. But I do love how, um, you know, you were open to that and, and that when people did sort of come out of the woodwork at you, of course you embraced that and welcomed it into your life and it turned out to be a supportive thing. I, I think that's amazing.
2: Yeah, it really has been. It's, um, I, I think that people in recovery are the most authentic people I've ever met. Because, like, to be sober, and maybe not for everybody, but like, it's almost like turning over every cell in your body. Yeah, and like getting to know yourself on such a deep level, and you're like, "Oh, I thought I knew myself. Nope, (laughs) not before recovery." Would you say, yeah, that maybe we
1: do have this like aura about us? Yeah, I think there's maybe that is it's that we're so attracted to that to a level of authenticity that maybe it's scary when we're living in a place of denial. Like I, I also think when I was drinking a lot, I was sort of attracted to people that could sort of facilitate the way I was doing things. Either people that like stayed an arm's length away, like I really quite liked associating with people that didn't get too close to me, that stayed outside of my armor, or that would that would sort of engage in the the dance, the way that I wanted to, you know, like, oh, let's have a glass of wine. Let's have six glasses of wine with dinner. Let's normalize this. And um, so in the same way, yeah. it's amazing how we can attract, well, I guess I got to watch the language that I use around it because I don't I don't think it's that we attract it to ourselves. It's that we're open to it when it happens. And I think that's fantastic. I have a couple of questions that I jotted down for you. So I'm going to just go back over a couple of things that I wanted to ask you about. Um, one is that, I'm I'm curious about um, as you've as you have processed this trauma and and uh, really you're just a year into it which is pretty early I mean it, it's something you probably will find changes shape throughout your life as you grow your your feelings around your trauma will change too but at this point how has your self perception changed because you sort of talked about having a misunderstanding of what your relationship with men should look like or what a normal healthy relationship should look like and how men perceive you do you see yourself differently um as a woman as in terms of your sexuality and how you present yourself are you more confident less confident what does that look like now that you've started dealing with this old junk
2: oh my gosh well that's a really big question i um I think, I mean, I definitely feel more positive about myself in so far as I don't ever want to go back to that. And by that, I mean for 20 years, I used men and alcohol to numb, to numb out. And they were never true, authentic relationships Um, like I thought that they were. But when I look back at them, I'm like, gosh, you know, like that, that wasn't actually me. Like it was a version of me, but it was like a sexualized drunk version of me. And I wasn't, I didn't actually know like the, the capacity of like true authentic love as in like love for myself. I think that has definitely grown. And I have, I'd like to think a very healthy sense of self now because I stopped like I, I stopped doing the things that were damaging, right? Like, um, you know, putting myself out there as a body, seeing myself as just a body, um, you know, damaging my body with with alcohol. Like once I stopped doing that and had like this healthy vision of, okay, I want a healthy relationship with myself, with with, with a partner that is authentic and true and loving and deep that's not, um, alcohol fueled. And so, um, I think, you know, my, like my relationship with my partner, you know, I know some people say like, well, you shouldn't date your first year of sobriety and blah, blah. And I, I don't think I necessarily agree with that because I don't think I, he's definitely been a. So he has been a, a, a big part of me, um, being able to be sober for a year. Because I think about like how hard would that have been if I asked him out and he drank. I mean actually it wouldn't have been hard. It would have been a you're not in my life. So
1: you and he are still together. This is the this is the fellow you asked for at work. (laughs)
2: Yeah. So yes. yes. And And um, you know,
1: I've noticed something amazing has happened in in my relationship as I became a better partner by golly, it turned out I started to realize that my husband was a better partner, and I'm not sure he changed. I think I changed in my perception or my openness to him changed. Do you find that everything' sort of exponentially more open as you heal?
2: Yes, like I I mean, I definitely. It's really interesting. Like, I grew in sobriety and recovery, as in like recovery from trauma, like with him, mm-hmm. as in like mm-hmm. it was mostly myself. Like, I I knew that I had to use myself as like I'm my rock, and um, no one else can be that for me. Like, I he he cannot be any of that. Like, I need to be the center of my recovery and recovery from um, you know substance use and and trauma. Like. So I think it, I found myself as in like I found out how good of a partner I could be sober through him. So I think it's an incredible gift, meaning the gift that he gave me that he was there and open to loving someone like me at that time wow. who was, you know, still processing all of her crap, um, you know, but I was I, when I met him, I was pretty much like at the tail end of, you know, um, of, um, dealing with like recovery or trauma stuff. So, um, I definitely think that I've learned to love myself first and then able to give like authentic, true, deep love, a love that I literally didn't know existed because yeah. I, I couldn't, like there was a depth of love or, like, authenticity in a relationship that I just couldn't get to being drunk.
1: Yeah, yeah. You think well, you're you know, in love. <laughs> it, well, maybe we're as in love as we're capable of being when we're so numb, because just as you were talking, it really what came to mind is that I've heard a lot of people on this show talk about the fact that getting drinking helped them numb their bad feelings, but it also took away their, abil- their ability to truly feel their good feelings. And so even though getting sober means having to face those bad feelings that you're trying to avoid, it also gives you the gift of being able to feel joy. And I've heard you say that throughout this interview, especially as you talk about riding your bike and being in this relationship, that you've sort of hit new heights of joy that you've just never experienced before. And um, that it's the freedom that alcohol gives you this, the ability to hit both ends of the spectrum. And um, that's pretty amazing. Can't have one without the other, I guess.
2: Oh, it is amazing. Yeah, and I think, like, people have to hang on to that, that, like, yeah, there is a range of emotions that you're going to feel. And those awful negative feelings that just bring you down to your knees um, or you stay in bed for a day, like, there are also ones that are, Joy and love and deep gratitude that you never knew you could feel the depth yeah. of that. So, yeah, I definitely think maybe on like days that are rough, like just, um, you know, are people thinking, like, am I ever going to feel better? It's like allowing yourself, or like, you know, there's one statement from Women for Sobriety Life can be ordinary or it can be great greatness of yeah. mine by a conscious effort. And you have to make that, like, I, you know, I, I have to put myself on the bike. I have to do the work. Um, you know, just, it doesn't just come, you know, like writing gratitudes every day. Um, you know, the, the joy doesn't just like randomly come you, you, you have to create it too. So
1: mm-hmm. that's awesome. And, uh, I want to just, I guess there's only a few minutes left. Um, We're down to our last couple minutes because we had, darn it, we had so many technical issues that it ate up some of our time, I'm afraid. But in the last few minutes before we go, I guess I want to ask you to speak to that listener who is kind of suffering and who's in the dark places. Um, What do you say to them where they're at? What, What encouragement do you have for someone who's really struggling? I
2: would say to like take a chance, like take a chance on, um, being like attempting to get out of whatever hell that you're in and, you know, um, like putting and not necessarily like faith in something, but I, I think a lot of people do say that, like, putting your faith in something that's maybe like higher than you, whether that's the universe or wind, like literally wind or leaves or a tree um, that, that you, you know, like have faith that there are people who have done this and that it works and that you can feel better. Like you don't have to, you don't have to suffer anymore and I think, like, you know, there's people around me who still who are still drinking. They're not in my inner circle, but I live around them. You know, like, they live in close proximity to me, um, like, in my neighborhood. And I just, you know, like I see them suffering. Um, and I, you know, and I think to myself, like, maybe they just, you know, and everyone has their own journey, but, like, maybe they just need that permission of, like, that's okay. Like you don't have to live like this anymore. You don't have to have the shackles of addiction or trauma. Um, That there's like another way to live. Right. Mm -hmm. That, you know, Mm -hmm. like maybe we've been brainwashed because we have by alcohol and alcohol, the alcohol industry that life is so much better with alcohol and like, and it's not. And so um, I think, putting people around you who are loving and sober and finding a group, connecting with other people, getting online, whatever that means, going to a group if you want to go to a group. Or, you know, there's so many different types of programs that are out there. Finding something maybe physical, right? Like mine was biking. Maybe someone is going to the gym and, you know, you know, becoming a bodybuilder or swimming or knitting. Like whatever it is, um, it seems like, Uh, physical is a really good one for me, like just getting on a bike. That just seems to help me. And so if someone can at least just maybe find something that they've always, that they've been interested in trying or want to learn something new or just something to get them out into nature, um, I think it's a big thing.
1: You know, I was walking my dog before you and I um, started speaking on the phone. And as I was out on a path by a lake, I saw this a very frail-looking old man walking with a walker, and he was on a path that was he was clearly quite a ways from wherever he started, and he was just slowly, slowly making his way around the lake. So I kind of started walking beside him and chatting with him. He kind of reminded me of my dad, who I lost a year ago, so I just wanted to strike up a conversation. And it turned out, Marie, that he is 99 years old, And he walks laps Uh around the lake every day because he says he's a retired physician, and he says use it or lose it. And he he was brilliant. He was funny. He was charming. And um, he said, yeah, use it or use it, use it or lose it. He said you've got to get outside every day and do some activity. And I knew I was going to be talking to you about how cycling changed your life and how just being out in nature helped you just tackle recovery when it, you had a few false starts and, and that exercise changed your life. And I thought how fitting that this sweet gentleman should just sort of slowly cross my path on this day when we're having this conversation. Oh, so.
2: yeah. That's a really sweet story. And like yeah. maybe the cycling is, that's something that I needed to jumpstart because the first two times that I tried, I didn't have anything physical. So it's like, it might take a few times to figure out what works best physically, like to get right. out, get out in nature, get out on something to get right. your body moving. You know, there's, you know, there are lots of endorphins and things that, that happen to our bodies that cause us to feel better when we are physically active. So I know that works for me.
1: And, you know, my, my friend gave me a, on my first anniversary, gave me a box of chocolate covered strawberries and a note card that said, now, you know, you get to have fun discovering okay. other uh, pleasures. And I thought that was so brilliant because that is what alcohol stole for me was just my ability to enjoy other pleasures because I slowly, slowly just got these blinders on that the only good thing in the world was alcohol. And um, that is the joy of recovery is it just opens us back up again to all the other good things out there. Oh my gosh,
2: the... you're not kidding.
1: Yeah, that's, that is, I mean, life is for living and it gets us back to that. You gave us so much to think about today and I just want to thank you for being so open in talking about difficult stuff and um, just sharing openly and 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 frankly about hard things that have happened to you and how they affected you and I feel like we could probably talk for three more hours because I have two pages of questions that I didn't get to. Um, but I'm just really grateful for you. And I know you've said that if, if anybody um, wants to write to you, they're welcome to. So any listeners that um, want to pass their thoughts on to Marie, if this if this episode has touched you or has you know changed your thinking or has got you at wondering about something and you'd like to connect with Marie, you can email her by writing to me at thebubblehour at gmail.com. And Or you can message me on Facebook on the Bubble Hour page. You can send me a message through the message link there. And then I will make sure that Marie gets your message as well. And I wanted to give a couple other links for things that you talked about. I mentioned them once already, but I'll say them again. So you talked about the wonderful online world of Women for Sobriety, which is womenforsobriety.org, or you can just search Women for Sobriety. And then there's also Belle's blog. Sometimes people talk about Belle's 100-Day Challenge. Her blog is tiredofthinkingaboutdrinking.com. And again, if you search Bell 100-Day Challenge or tired of thinking about drinking, you'll find that on the Internet. And I think those are some really great resources to get people started. And I want to thank you so much for being here. Um, and just any closing thoughts before you go?
2: no I just want to say thank you Jean this was almost kind of a a very like I get a lot out of this right it's almost kind of a selfish thing you know um doing this interview just knowing that it it helped me like it it I you know I got so much out of it and um you know I'm I you have no idea and you know the the listeners too that just how much this has helped me and that um I just feel so grateful to be able to be in a position to talk about it and, and share what works for me. And, and even if it
1: helps one person, then I've, I've, done, I've done my job. Well, thank you so much. And I should say, too, that um, it was you who contacted me and offered to share your story on the Bubble Hour, and I'm so grateful you did. And I want to put that out to other listeners as well, that if you would like to be on the Bubble Hour, just send me an email or a message on Facebook. Again, it's thebubblehour at gmail.com. And I would love to have you on. I have loved talking to you, Marie, and I'm so grateful for your story and for your service to others by being mm-hmm. here. And I, just, I really love how this show brings us together and lets us find each other. So thank you for being willing and, and for reaching out. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, Jean. Okay, everyone, that's it for this week. Marie, stay on the line while the closing music plays, and I'll chat with you off air. As for the rest of you, uh, enjoy the closing song, which, by the way, is me singing. A lot of you don't know that. I found out, but it is me, so if you haven't listened to it, do. And uh, until next time, everyone, take good care.
0: I own it, I did Not proud that that was me And when I face it I take back a little dignity Not looking for excuses I just want to be free from power It, on the side. it just stays and wait there To rob you of your pride Turn the light on, turn the light on You can't shine When you say, on oh, I did that Not proud that with was me And when I face it I take that little dignity I'm not a for excuse I just want to be. And the one who matters most can always hear When you say, oh, I didn't Not have to damage me And when I say, I take back a little dignity and I am not listen for excuses I just want to be free from the power Oh, you just cannot see When you say, oh, I didn't Not proud. to me one